Welcome to Hunt Harvest Health, the podcast with your host, Ryan Lampers, a.k.a. The Stealthy Hunter. Howdy. And myself, Dr. Hillary Lampers, where we share our love for ancestral living and the health topics of the modern age. Ryan is the well-rounded bearded brawn of Hunt Harvest Health. His knowledge of backcountry adventure, western hunting, and our household status as garden guru and super dad really defines our gut stealthy lifestyle. Doc Hillary is definitely the brains and beauty behind all of this. She kind of makes everything happen as I have zero technical skills. Hill is just a wealth of knowledge in all things medicine and nutrition, which not only keep our family healthy, but they help me stay strong in all my mountain adventures. You can follow us at huntharvesthealth.com, Instagram, and Facebook for more podcasts, recipes, and stories. We appreciate all the five-star reviews that you, the listeners, have shared on iTunes. Myself and Stealthy Honor will be enjoying and selecting a review for each podcast. If we read your review on the air, please email us at lampersatstealthyhunter.com to get your official Hunt Harvest Health t-shirt or tank. Today's review comes from Guns and Duns. Must listen for hunters. Phenomenal content, diverse, entertaining, and a powerhouse lineup of guests. Ryan and Hillary bring an inspiring mix of everything you need to know to live a healthier, high-quality life. They both possess a unique yet overlapping intellect that make me taking notes every episode. The former closet introvert, Ryan, gets it done in the woods, hunting year in and year out, and brings us vivid commentary on his adventures. Dr. Hillary shares tips and tricks on getting better acquainted with our food and the critical role food plays as our medicine. Funny thing for me is, the thing I enjoy the most is Ryan's gardening adventures. I am a self-proclaimed podcast addict, and Hunt Harvest Health is on top of my subscribed list. Hashtag just know about it. Thank you, Guns and Duns. Email us at lampers at stealthyhunter.com to receive your t-shirt or tank. All right, let's do this. Welcome to this Hunt Harvest Health 45th episode. That's right. We're almost at 50 episodes. Hard to believe. We are about a month away from our one-year anniversary with this podcast, and we want to thank all of you out there who have supported us, who listen, who share. Um, it's fun. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun, and it's, it's been fun to create this community and uh, just help so many of you out there with questions, and you've helped us a lot in our life as well. So it's also Thanksgiving, so hey, I'm giving you some thanks for that. I'm by myself. I've got a couple sick kids, and Ryan is on his way home from his very last hunt of the season. So Stealthy Hunter hunting season is coming to a close. I think it's been fairly successful. Um, like it is every year, <laughs> but um, soon we'll be able to have a lot more time together to work on work on this podcast, work on health topics, and some things we have coming up for the new year. Uh, appropriately, since I've been at home with sick kids, I think that today's podcast is a good one for all of us out there this time of year and really any time of the year, and it has to do with kiddos. Today, I'm going to be talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Caitlin O'Connor. She's a naturopathic physician in Denver, Colorado. Um, she is the founder of 
All Families Natural Health. You can find her at allfamiliesnaturalhealth.com. She is also a certified midwife, having delivered over 100 babies. And she has an anthropology um, major. She's an anthropology major from the University of Colorado in Boulder. So this podcast today... I think is awesome because, hey, come on, if you have kids, your whole life revolves around your kids. And if the baby's not happy, the parents aren't happy. I've been watching Instagram and Facebook. A lot of you have new babies. A lot of you have young children. And I think that you'll find the information in this podcast very useful. We're really going to focus a lot on the microbiome in this in this uh, podcast. And the reason for that is, as you know, we are really... Um, into gut health and kind of as the foundational piece of getting healthy. With that gut restoration diet we've done, um, the guide we've put out, the work we've done with Dr. Jillian Tita, who's been on the podcast numerous times, um, you know, gut health is so vital and it starts, it really even starts before you're born. So we're going to touch on, you know, kind of the life cycle of the microbiome. And then we'll touch on things like food introduction for babies, um, functional gut disorders, uh, some research that's out there related to the microbiome, as well as food sources and lifestyle factors like sleep, stress, and and the overuse of antibiotics and acid blockers in our kids today. So um, I hope you enjoy this podcast. You can find the show notes and anything that we reference, books, research, as well um, how to find Dr. Caitlin on Instagram, as well as um, a link to the Fussy Baby School. She's teaming up with Dr. Jillian Tita to do the Fussy Baby School for digestion. So I think you'll find that free information very valuable. So go to the show notes at huntharvesthealth.com slash podcast slash Fussy Baby. Enjoy. Welcome, Dr. O'Connor. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, it's it's um I'm kind of starting a new thing here on Hunt Harvest Health this year. We have been doing this podcast for almost one year in December. Wow. It'll be a year. And we've gotten so much great feedback about our health topics. And, you know, um, it's been it's been a little bit of a struggle to know, you know, what our audience wants to hear about because our demographic is mainly males, um, obviously, but we I have really been working to get um, the wives and more women um, to listen to our podcast. And this is kind of where Ryan and I decided that we were going to have a broad range of topics, especially when it came to health, because, you know, you can't really separate, (laughs) you know, um, especially if you're in a family and you're a parent, you have kids and stuff, you can't really separate your health from the family's health. As many of you who do have children know, if the baby's not happy, nobody's happy, right? No. Uh-uh. <laughs> and so I really think that this is a great topic to kind of jump into um, for people who who just want to get a broader base of how they can help um, their families be healthier. And so, you know, I'm calling all you men to listen and get your wives to listen, your girlfriends to listen, get your children to listen. Um, these are all really important things uh, for lifelong health. And um, Dr. O'Connor, and I'm probably going to end up calling her Caitlin because she is a friend <laughs> of mine. <laughs> I'm Dr. Caitlin. You don't mind if I call you that, do you? No, nope, that's whatever. That's that's more common than Dr. O'Connor. You me. know, isn't that interesting? I feel like in the naturopathic world that there's a lot of that. Our patients end up calling us by our first names. And yeah. I used to think that sometimes like, 
well, maybe I shouldn't be letting people call me Dr. Hillary, you know, because I should have more of a doctor persona or something. And I just find it awkward for people to call me Dr. Lampers. I don't know if you feel the same way. Well, I feel like it's this idea of, you know, more traditionally medicine has have this sort of hierarchical feel where sort of the doctor is the boss and, you know, you do what they say without questioning it. And I feel like my patients, and this is something sort of I want from them, is to understand that it's really a team approach. Like they're actually the experts in their health and their body. And it's my job to kind of get information from them, help them to interpret it, come up with a plan together. But I kind of like that more like, hey, we're all in this together. We're all on the same team. I'm kind of here to serve and help you figure out for your health. But it's not like this one-way street where I feel like conventionally we kind of have this idea of, ooh, the doctor tells you what to do and then you do it. Um, And now I think people are kind of waking up a little bit more and being like, oh, how's that really working out for us? Being a little bit more empowered about taking the driver's seat with their own health and having sort of a team of practitioners. Like I'm an expert in the medicine part of it and being like, what's safe? What's not safe? What does this diagnosis look like? But people really are the best at knowing like, these are my symptoms. This is my intuition. This is what I'm willing to do. This is what I want to do. So yeah, I like it. I think it just kind of plays into that whole feel of more of like a team versus like a top down structure. Yeah, yeah. I've found over the years that that's it. I actually am totally fine with being called by my first name by patients because there's a personal, there's a personality to it. And yeah, um, a little bit more trust and you know, really, as a doctor, we're really just a teacher and a facilitator to help people make yeah. do do the work, you know, unfortunately, we can't do the work for them, at least in yeah. what we're doing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not doing surgeries and stuff on them. But you know, um, we're really helping to facilitate their change through their hard work. So, okay, so why don't you give us a little bit of background? And then, yeah, uh, so yeah. I went to Bastyr University yes. with Hillary with Dr. Hillary, that's how we know each other. Yeah. Um, I also did the midwifery program while I I was at school. So I don't currently practice midwifery, but that really informs how I approach medicine and why I really focus a lot on the preconception and prenatal uh, kind of season of life, postpartum, infant health, things like that. Those things have always been really important to me. Um, And I don't have, you know, I feel like a lot of naturopathic doctors have these like really amazing origin stories, like where they were really sick and naturopathic medicine really helped them. For me, it was, I've just always been into it. I think even starting in high school, I started experimenting sort of with my own diet and reading books about Chinese medicine and reading books about herbs. And, you know, my friends would get hurt and I'd have my little like first aid kit trying to help people out. Uh, <laughs> but I never knew that naturopathic medicine was actually a field. Like, I literally had no idea it was a thing that you could be when you grew up. And I knew that conventional medicine wasn't the right fit for me. I had a lot of family members and close family friends that were in that more conventional field. And they just never seemed really happy with their jobs. And uh, I just knew that that wasn't, you know, that wasn't my path. So um, I studied anthropology. I was an anthropology major in college because I am just was always really interested in people. And I feel like that's actually been really interesting in sort of informing how I practice naturopathic medicine because I'm always kind of looking at it like, well, what makes sense culturally for people and how has this been like an adaptation over 
time. So I really approach naturopathic medicine from that kind of anthropological, biological point of view. Uh, and then after school, I was just kind of like working a regular corporate job and ran across a yoga teacher who happened to also be a naturopathic doctor. And like the second she told me what she was, I like went home and I Googled it and I like went back and did my pre-med like the next semester and like applied to school. And it was like, oh yeah, this is what I always wanted to be. I just didn't know it was a thing I could be. Um, and that's sort of what I've been doing ever since. And I think, you know, I really like it. I like this ability to work with families and empower people to learn more about their health and kind of change, change their trajectory. And the cool thing I think about for a lot of people when they have children is all of a sudden they're taking their health a little bit more seriously. All of a sudden they're right. willing to make some lifestyle changes. All of a sudden they're like, Oh yeah, what, what types of food am I eating? Like I want to give my kiddo sort of the best opportunity. Um, so it's a really cool sort of shifting point in a lot of people's lives where, you know, if you give them sort of this information, they have more of that motivation, you know, for better or worse, we tend to do more for our, for our kids than we will for ourselves sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like that's often people's entry point is to naturopathic medicine. They have a sick kiddo or they have a kiddo with a health condition and they're not getting the answers they really want. And then they kind of come to naturopathic medicine. And then as a result, I kind of end up seeing the whole family because I see, oh, that really worked for my kid. Well, my other kid has, you know, this problem. This kid has eczema. This kid has constipation. All right. That's all better. Well, you know, I have hypothyroid. What about that? You know, and then you kind of start treating the whole family and everybody's getting better. And so much what we do is really lifestyle based that it really makes sense for the whole family to be on board. Everybody's going to benefit when they start applying the naturopathic principles to their household. Right. Well, I, I don't, I don't do pediatrics, so I'm, but I do have two kids. Right. And I, I kind of understand that whole thing is like when you have children, you I feel at least in my educated sense of the world about nutrition and you know what what I think healthy and what I think is not healthy, it's still really hard to navigate the world today yeah. um, to make choices that you think are right a hundred percent of the time because I just really feel like there's so many more distractions, especially with food and and mm -hmm. TV and and iPads and all yeah. this technology and and um, that there's there seems to be more external environmental um, roadblocks than maybe yeah. there used to be in the past as far as um, taking well, care of your yeah. family. Well, there's definitely more choices. I think that's part more of it. Choices. I mean, there used to just be like, this is the way everybody did things. And that was like your only option. Like you ate the food that you could find and that was the only food there was. And then there was no electricity. So you went to bed when it was dark. Right. You know, now it's like, well, what type of diet do I get to choose? Should I be keto? Should I be paleo? Should I be raw? Should I be vegan? It's like, these are all choices that are very new. It's like this abundance of options almost. And it can be really sort of confusing and overwhelming. And I think with parenting, that's also true. It's like, should my kid go to Montessori school or a Waldorf school or a nature school? And it's like before it's like, you know, maybe there was schools Maybe you went to school through fifth grade and then worked on a farm. Maybe you were an apprentice. So it is it is a very different thing. And I think it's all just about, to me, finding what works best for your family. There's not a perfect way to do it. And we're not going to even necessarily stick 100% to what we think is the right way to do it sometimes, right? Like we might right. be like, ooh, I'm trying to cut back on screen time. And then like, you know, something <laughs> hits 
I mean, the family gets sick, you've got a deadline at work, your childcare cancels, and you're like, just kidding, today we're doing a lot a lot more screen time. So right. I think part of it is just, you know, approaching it with some grace and just some ideas of like, everybody's just doing the best that they can. Um, and then I think there's, you know, some principles that I that are important that we can kind of get into that I think are are kind of strong foundations. Like I always feel like if you got if you have a good foundation, and to me those foundational things are food, sleep, stress, uh, movement, like those are the four things that I'm always checking in on sort of with patients of all ages, even like we don't necessarily think about like toddlers, you know, how are they moving in the world? But like, Mm -hmm. are they in, you know, strapped down in a car seat that they're moving from one place to another? Do they get to walk? Do they get to explore their environment? That that actually has a big impact as well. So I feel like if your foundations are good, um, you can kind of get away with a fair amount of wiggle room where like, yep, they went to a birthday party and they ate that, you know, refined sugar, white flour cake and like everything's going to be okay. Like that, right. they're going to be all right. Cause they have that solid foundation. Well, what I find too with my girls is at least like my older one, Paley, you know, it, it's like, okay, eat that. She's pretty tuned in. She'll eat yeah. it and ah. she'll be like, I don't want this anymore, mom. It's not good. Or it's yeah. like, it's making me, it's giving me a belly ache, right? So she's like tuned into the signals of her body. And I think that's one important thing of, you know, teaching children that their signals are really important and that they need to listen to those things. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes, I think sometimes though, they're kind of emulating adults because a lot of adults don't listen to their bodies anymore. They don't listen to the signals, you know, like you're tired, go to sleep. Um, you shouldn't be eating that food. It's making you sick. Uh, you know, you, you shouldn't be in that horrible relationship or working that horrible job. You know, we just kind yeah. of keep going through and we, our children see that. And so I, I think we, I always know that I want my kids to kind of feel like, you know, deep down, like what's going on in your body? Like, what do you feel? And um, I think that's a big piece of kind of giving them some independence too, right? Like, yeah. And once they get to, to a certain choices. age, like you can make the choice here and see how you feel. Right. Um, and then to go back to what you said, I do feel that our choices are so excessive that We've now, like we're seeing now, diseases of excess. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing those in children, which we only used to see in, you know, older adults, really. Yeah. So I think what I'd like to do is I kind of like to start from from the beginning. And I'd like you to just kind of help us understand there's this big word out there right now, the microbiome. It's very hip right now. And um, they're discovering so much like every single day about the microbiome. And I think if you could just go over kind of, you know, where we get our microbiome from, why it's so important um, and kind of how it follows us through our life and the things that we do. Yeah. Can you do that? Totally. Sweet. Yeah. Because, you know, when we talk about like foundations, it's really interesting because we were kind of chatting about this before we got started, but naturopathic medicine has this historical sort of tradition of treat the gut. Like if you don't know what's going on with the person, if you can't figure out what's wrong with them, like start with the gut, treat the gut. And now, you know, 
we sort of moved into this era of the microbiome and people are like, Ooh, we've got to like explore your microbiome and know like every different sort of bacterial species in there and try to like hack it and change it. And it really goes back to this naturopathic principle of treat the gut. And when I think about sort of treating the gut, there's sort of two components. One is the microbiome. And some people are even starting to think we should sort of expand that term beyond just microbiome, which sort of more implies your bacterial balance, but also that there's um, can be viruses that are part of your normal gut ecosystem. There can be fungal or yeast species that are good and ones that sort of we know that are bad. And that the way that I describe it to people is your microbiome is kind of just like any other ecosystem. So it's like a garden or a jungle and you've got different types of creatures and you've got different types of species and they're all sort of practicing according to the laws of supply and demand. And what you want to do is have an abundant sort of population of good guys, which again are mostly bacteria, but could also be some sort of other organisms as well. And you want those good guys to all be sort of working together to help digest your food, to help modulate your immune system, um, to help even create things like uh, chemicals for your brain, your neurotransmitters. So you have this gut, you have this really important microbiome, and it actually starts when you are before you were born. So when you are in the womb, um, we used to think that the womb was this like sterile environment that no bacteria could get into. But now we're starting to realize that even the maternal gut ecosystem influences through the placenta, some very sort of early seeding of the infant microbiome. And then, you know, we get into sort of some really critical periods, um, which are birth. So how were you born? Mm-hmm. And under what, you know, in what environment were you born? And then in what environment, you know, how were you fed early on? I'll even ask my patients, you know, I see patients that are, you know, in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and I still ask them, how were you born? Were you born... Uh, were you, did you have a vaginal birth or were you born via cesarean? Do you know if your mom had antibiotics in labor? Were you breastfed? And they're like, that was, you know, 60 years ago. Why are we talking about that? But those really early seeds start to, you know, lay the foundations for what is your microbiome going to look like throughout your whole life. Right. Uh, so for example, ideally, uh, babies that are born um, through the vaginal canal, so a vaginal birth versus a cesarean birth, are going to have a really different microbiome than babies who are born via C-section because they are actually being sort of seeded through the vaginal ecosystem, which is a pretty good reflection of the gut ecosystem as far as species diversity and abundance. And then there, those babies sort of are born with all of those sort of good bacteria versus when they look at babies that were born versus cesarean section, that um, those babies don't have those same strains. They'll actually have more strains in their gut that are more from the skin or even like from the doctors and nurses that were in the delivery room versus a microbiome that sort of matches their familial microbiome a little bit more, which isn't to say, you know, we never want to get into that point where people are like, Oh my God, I was born via C-section or my kids were born via C-section. Our microbiomes are screwed. You know, we're going to have asthma. We're going to have allergies. We're going to have, you know, reflux and all these things. But it's just a piece of information that says, oh, you know, based on that piece of information, I might sort of have to do a little bit more work to build up my species diversity. There might be specific strains that I'm lacking. And it just kind of helps us unlock the puzzle. Information is never like 
for me, I'm never trying to deliver information in a judgmental way, right? Because I know there's times where uh, cesarean delivery is super medically indicated or, you know, people, you know, a hospital birth is better for that person because of sort of their high risk. I know me and you are both a big proponent of the midwifery model model yeah. of care and home birth, which I think is sort of the best way to go about it from a microbiome point of view. Um, but not everybody has access to that care. Not everybody's a candidate for that care, but it's something to kind of take into consideration when people are deciding, hey, I'm pregnant or I'm planning to get pregnant. Like in what environment do I want to deliver my child? And I mm -hmm. think sort of microbiome health should actually be a consideration. And if we want to sort of pass on the most robust ecosystem to our kiddo, that should be an environment where you're most likely to have a vaginal birth, less likely to have interventions and less likely to have things like antibiotics at the time of birth. One thing you learn after having children is, is that you always have an expectation in your head of how it's going to be, and it usually never turns out that way. And if yeah. it does, you're super pumped, but there seems to always be something that doesn't. So it's like you, you are in the hospital or you get a C-section, and a lot of women and parents will be hard on themselves around, you know, how it went. And you're right. You know, the truth is, is, that, is that we there shouldn't be judgment. There should just be, like, helping to educate people about how yeah. they can now make those changes or make those improvements yeah. that maybe they didn't get exposed to. And I think, you know, it all comes, there's so much guilt around parenting and parenting choices and judgment and things like that. And I think that's actually, you know, really develop detrimental to familial health and, and even microbiome health when we look at the impact of stress. So the information that we're sharing is really just, you know, you do the best with you do the best in that moment with the information that you had at that time. You can't sort of judge your past self based on decisions you made in the past because of information you had at that point. Like right. we're all just doing the best that we can. And as we learn a little bit more, we can kind of experiment with like, Oh, how does that change things? You know, how can I make different choices moving forward? How does that kind of align more with my family values? So it's all just about getting information and then processing it and deciding like what is working for us as an individual or a family. It's not about you have to do it this perfect way. Right. Because as you know, there's no perfect. <laughs> there is no perfect. There's only real life. And you know, the best, the best sort of, I feel like the biggest difference between someone who's like a perfect parent and somebody who's like just getting by is like most people who think they really have parenting figuring out don't actually have children yet. Right. Uh, and there's nothing like having kids and sort of diving in that reality to, to have a lot of your ideals just really come crashing down on you where you're like oh. I would never do xyz and then like a few years later oh here here I am I'm doing that thing okay right I get it now um I feel like that's one of the the best lessons of parenthood is that lesson of like compassion as far as like oh this is really hard sometimes like cool we're all just doing our best yeah yeah for sure and I think it's kind of like the second child syndrome right like Oh, yeah. The first kid, everybody's like, ah, what do I do then? And then your second kid, you're like, oh, you're eating that off the floor? Great. Yeah. Well, just I'm so impressed. I have a lot of families in my practice that have sort of bigger families, five, six, seven kids. I'm always like, oh, my God, what is that seventh kid? I mean, are they just kind of <laughs> like, you know, yeah. survival of the fittest? Like, you just get it. You know, it just gets done. But I think, yeah, it's like the more the more experience you have with kids, the more you realize there's it's not one size fits all. What works really perfectly, there's always those people, you know, maybe their first kid was like a really good sleeper or a really good eater, and then they have a 
second kid and they do everything the same and they're totally different. They're like, damn it. All of those, all of the things I thought were doing perfectly just happened to be a really good fit for that one kid. Right. Uh, not that I sort of cracked the code on making awesome kids. Well, you know, the truth is when you have children, you realize each one of them does have their own unique personality and they have their own unique genetics. I mean, they, you, yeah. you don't give the same genetics to every child, you know, yeah. they, they kind it's of a roll pick of and the choose dice. They've got things. their own thing. And so you can have one child who's super healthy and robust and you can have one child that's not. And it yep. may not have to, it may not have been anything that you did per se. It's just that it was kind of the luck of the draw. So it's really now about, okay, what do we do to optimize that? Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit just about maybe some, and, and this is kind of like throwing this at you, but you know, just statistically what we're seeing now in childhood, um, illness, I guess is what I should say. And some yeah. of kind of the alarming numbers that we're seeing. It can be scary when parents hear those statistics. It's like, oh my God, how am I ever going to raise a healthy kid in this environment? Um, so I think partially when we look at the statistics, it's, I think there's, some of it is how are we reporting things differently? How much are people accessing healthcare? I think to some degree, especially when we look at behavioral things um, like ADHD, there's some kids who might truly meet that diagnosis, but I think a lot of times we're, our expectations of kids are a little bit out of whack as far as like what we think they should be doing. Like how much time are they getting outside? How much screen time are they having? Are they sort of getting good nutrition? I think so many of these diagnoses are actually secondary to just like a, a lifestyle mismatch. Right. And right. instead of saying like, Oh, you know, maybe this kiddo, isn't really the, you know, doesn't really have the sort of temperamental type or the constitutional type to like sit still in a classroom for eight hours. We're like, oh, well, they must have ADHD and they need medication. Whereas I might look at it and be like, they probably need more recess, right? I mean, there's some schools now that they either don't have recess or gym or they have like 15 minutes or they don't have access to playgrounds. So they're inside that whole time. Uh, they're getting like, I mean, if you look at like the food quality in schools, it's just... Mm -hmm. pretty shocking like how much sugar are they getting most schools you see a lot of teachers using like uh sugar as treats like um rewards for good behavior so there's a lot of candy in the classroom um kids are doing a lot of screen time they might be on screens first thing in the morning they might be on screens in the classroom they might go home you know so I think part of it is how have our sort of expectations changed the big thing that I see to kind of tie it back into sort of the microbiome piece is there's a majority of kids, almost 50% of kids at some point from infancy through childhood will have what's called like a functional digestive disorder. So the difference between like a, a pathologic or like a disease state would be like, oh, I've got, you know, ulcerative colitis, or I've got some sort of disease going on in my gut. A functional gut disorder just means your gut isn't functioning well. And when we talk about the things that kind of fall under functional gut disorders, we're, we all know people who have them. So those are things like infant colic, uh, reflux, constipation, functional stomach aches, so kids who just kind of constantly have a stomach ache. So the majority of our kids at some sort of stage of their childhood are going to have one of these functional gut disorders. And I see this so much in my practice. That's kind of one of my areas of specialty is looking at kids with these um, functional gut disorders because typically there's a not a lot that is sort of offered through um, 
conventional medicine. So they end up in sort of naturopathic medicine. And what we see really with these gut issues, and I think so many of these gut issues kind of start out. And then when we look at somebody's history, maybe who's a little bit older and are having, you know, more issues with mood, more issues with energy, more issues with sort of fertility. And we go back, they're like, oh yeah, I've been constipated since I was a kid. Or I was a really fussy, colicky baby. I always ask people, um, what was your, what was your baby? What was your child like as a baby? Were they fussy? Were they diagnosed with reflux? Were they put on proton pump inhibitors? That's a huge issue. Um, that I'm seeing now is 10% of babies are prescribed proton pump inhibitors, which really disrupt the microbiome. Um, and they're doing it because more babies are being diagnosed sort of with what is called infant reflux, which I don't actually think in many cases is infant reflux. I think it really is a disruption of the microbiome plus sort of an imbalance in that, that gut brain ability to sort of calm and self-soothe. Um, so I really think this increase in functional gut issues is at the root a lot of, of a lot of these conditions that then, you know, get diagnosed later on. And that if we really started with building up a strong um, microbiome as well as focusing on sort of the gut-brain connection that we'd be able to prevent a lot of these sort of chronic illnesses that we see sort of showing up later in life. Wow, yeah, that's so true. I mean, I've just noticed it in adults, you know, helping them with their digestion and uh, just doing the simple things is like cutting out allergenic foods, right? Mm -hmm. Their exposure to that and how in one month you can take somebody who was having tons of problems um, you know, functionally, and maybe even uh, having disease like processes starting. And in just one month from them doing that, they can greatly change how they feel. Um, yeah. And that's that. So if that can happen in an adult, like a child, you know, their cells are fastly replicating. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't remember the numbers of how many cells, like a billion or something per minute. That of yeah. cells that we build in our fast. body, children, yeah. like, shush. so, you know, if you can implement some of these things, especially like a healthy diet, um, that's going to make such a huge difference in their life. And then you're just building that improved immunity, right? Yeah. Um, so I talk a lot to parents of, they'll be like, okay, that's great. Like what makes up a gut friendly diet? Yeah. Um, and I have, I have some sort of guidelines that I give to folks. Cause I don't think, you know, we are really biochemically unique. So one family might thrive on more of a plant-based diet. Another family might thrive on more of a paleo diet. You know, there's a lot of different approaches, but I think all when we look at sort of what what the research shows is sort of gut-friendly and what I see being sort of really helpful for kiddos, there's some pretty like um, some good guidelines. Uh, one of the things is to kind of go back to the establishment of the microbiome is to really promote breastfeeding. I think there's like, almost nothing that I would like to see more than for women to sort of receive the breastfeeding support that they need. Because the idea is like, oh, it's natural. We should just be able to do this. But so many women have issues with breastfeeding. And I think a lot of that is that there's been this disconnect where, you know, formula really took over in the 50s and 60s. So there was this whole generation or two of women who like weren't breastfed and didn't know, like, that wasn't a part of their family culture. They never saw anybody sort of feeding their baby. They didn't know that was like a normal thing. Um, so we sort of lost this tradition. And now we have women who are being like, oh, hey, like, this is important to our family. Like, you know, there's nothing more. When I think of like Hunt Harvest Health, I'm like, 
there's nothing more sort of that fits into that paradigm of being able to sort of nurse the baby. And I think the issue here, again, is people feel really guilty because that maybe didn't work for them. And I feel like 95 to 98% of that time was that it was sort of not managed well from Mm -hmm. the medical side, that people got bad advice early on, that they didn't have a properly trained lactation consultant, and um, they didn't have the familiar support. They had to go to back to work and their work didn't provide. So our our culture does a really bad job supporting women with breastfeeding. So I feel like, you know, people maybe have this sort of individual feeling of like, oh, I wasn't able to do that. And I have a lot of guilt. And I feel like I could, I wish I could erase that for people because it's almost always not laying with that individual. It's the fact that we don't really support families postpartum the way that we need to. Yeah. It's a total another topic that I'm just super passionate (laughs) about. But I, again, want to like, erase anybody who's listening to this now, like, oh, I wasn't able to breastfeed. You know, I feel that like, it wasn't your fault. Right. You probably didn't get the right support, either the right medical support, the right family support, the right social support. So one thing I would say to sort of people who are like planning to have babies or have young babies or have friends and family that have sort of younger kiddos is to really support, um, breastfeeding women like if you see a woman sitting down and breastfeeding like bring her a plate of food bring her a glass of water like don't try to you know throw a sheet on her and like hide her in the other room like we should really be integrating breastfeeding women into normal society we shouldn't be you know making them hide in the other room or feel ashamed or you know right. talking to them about oh you should just you know be bottle feeding in public like we should be integrated this is just a normal natural part of what we do is human animals. And I feel like if there was more of that support, it would be an easier journey for a lot of women. Yeah. Um, so breastfeeding is super important for establishing the microbiome. Um, once people start uh, introducing food, I really like baby led weaning. Are you familiar with sort of the baby led weaning? I think you did something similar with your kiddos. Yeah, I did. So it's a British term. So in, in England, kind of England English. I don't know the right way to say that. Yeah. But um, they talk about weaning as the introduction. They actually don't talk about weaning as weaning from milk. Weaning to them is adding solid foods in. So baby-led oh. weaning is the process of how you introduce solids to your infant. And our sort of cultural norm is to kind of start with, you know, the, the rice cereal, the enriched iron rice cereal, and then to kind of do purees and do a lot of like spoon feeding to babies, where baby led weaning is actually where you just really bypass a lot of that and actually just start feeding the baby regular foods and allowing them to sort of feed themselves. So for example, you know, doing like slices of soft food, like slices of avocado, slices of well-cooked um, sweet potato, and letting them explore that sort of texture. Um, I'm a big proponent of baby-led weaning. One, I think, I mean, have you ever tasted, I mean, baby food is kind of gross. Um, yeah. Texture is a Yeah, the texture is not good. Uh, it usually only has like, uh, it, ha- it usually only tastes sweet. So even if you get like turkey and peas, you taste it and you're like, this just kind of all has the same sweet flavor and not a lot of texture. And I think the issue there is we actually are creating kids who don't have a good palate. Um, so they haven't been exposed to a lot of flavors. So then when they start eating real food, they're like, this is gross. This is gross. I just like white bland food because that that's all they were exposed to early on. And there's some really interesting research that like the more foods and flavors a mom 
eats even when the baby's in utero. So the more f- diversity <coughs> of food you eat in utero, well, you have a the the baby in utero that goes through the amniotic fluid and actually flavors your amniotic fluid, and then your baby will be more interested in eating those types of food later on in life. So raising like a good eater or not picky eater actually starts while you are pregnant based off of the food that you are eating and introducing. And that goes through babies who are uh, breastfed, who they get their um, mother's breast milk. The flavors that you eat while breastfeeding go in through your milk and the more diversity. So like they, uh, you know, if you're eating garlic, if you're eating spices, all of these things go through your milk and they actually develop a palate for a kiddo who later on in life is going to be a more adventurous eater. Hmm. So, you know, I read a study, I forget what it was. It was in a magazine. It was a a woman. um, I was trying to find it on on the internet, but I couldn't find it. Um, This woman in the early part of the century, she had an orphanage and she uh, had obviously had orphans and a lot of them were babies. And she did this experiment. It was long term. Unfortunately, I think a lot of her work was lost. There was like a fire or something crazy. She uh, she had a list of foods that she yeah, put out every day it, yeah. for these children, and it it was like organ meats, um, cod liver oil, yeah, cod liver oil, vegetables, fruits, um, uh, legumes, like just simple whole foods that you would you know back then they didn't have a lot of processed food like we do anyways, but um, and she would put it out every day for these babies. And as they were learning food introduction, what she noticed is that they would actually go to the foods that they were most needing. So, so mm-hmm. and, and, and she didn't control the amount or how much, like how much they wanted to eat at one sitting and how much of that food they wanted. So if they wanted to eat oranges all day, she just let them eat oranges. And her research basically showed that a child will pick foods that's best for them, and they will eat it until they don't want to eat it anymore, meaning their body feels yeah. like it's been satisfied, and then they'll go on to another food. And the body will also inherently not eat foods that it knows it doesn't feel good on. And she did this experiment for a long time, and um, really interesting. And she, she like recorded the health of these children and how they, they grew and prospered and stuff from this this letting them pick as they started eating solids, what they could eat, what they wanted. Yeah, I, I know exactly what study you're talking about. And I absolutely think that we suppress that in our kiddos. So I try to talk to parents about like having mealtime be like an emotionally unattached experience. So there's a woman, uh, Marion Nessel, she's a big, a researcher and a teacher that comes to sort of pediatric nutrition and her sort of rule is you're in charge of what goes on the table and when, and the kids are in charge of how much they eat. And if they don't want to eat anything, fine. They don't get something else. You don't say, Oh, you don't want to eat that. Okay. Let me make you a Mac and cheese. You say, okay, that's fine. You can be excused. If you get hungry later, you can come back as eat this as a snack that when we get really emotionally invested in like, take another bite, you have to eat, you have to eat more of this. If you eat three bites of this, you get dessert that what we're actually doing is kind of hijacking their ability to listen to their own body and listen to their own senses. If we're like, you have to be in the clean plate club, you got to eat all your food. You're basically saying stuff yourself with food, even when you're not hungry anymore. And I think that is kind of can lead to where people, have issues with sort of binge eating or feeling like, oh, I have to keep eating 
like we have this whole thing in our in our culture about like you have to clean your plate and it's like maybe you're full and like that's okay to be full or maybe that day you just want to eat blueberries all day all right that's fine like listen to your own body mm -hmm. um so and then it kind of gets into that gut brain thing like do we want to spend all of our meals just stressed out wondering how everybody else is eating at the table or are you kind of just like here are the foods you can choose from eat it or don't eat it see you later. Like, have a nice day. Let's talk about something pleasant. I feel like mealtime can turn into this huge battlefield for people. Um, or you see families where they're like, the kids don't eat their vegetables. And they're like, do you eat your vegetables? And they're like, no, we, we hate vegetables. So we're eating something else. And then we're trying to like force our kid to eat these like boiled broccoli spears with like no flavor on them and like no butter or salt. We have this idea that like children's food has to be super bland, that they shouldn't have spices or salt. And that's actually totally wrong as well. Um, and I'm like, it has to be a family experience. Everybody has to be on board. Everybody has to be eating the food. Uh, and it really doing this more baby led weaning to go back to that point. It really starts with the idea that like everybody's eating the same meal. So like if you're making, you know, a soup that the whole family's eating and you have sort of a younger kiddo, you might take pieces out of that soup. You might feed them like a few pieces of the carrot or the few pieces of like the, the beef if it's well cooked and soft. And then everybody eats the whole stew. There's a really great book. Um, Cynthia Lair, she, she's a nutritionist who taught at Bastyr for a while mm -hmm. and she wrote the book Feeding the Whole Family. I don't know if you're familiar with that Yeah, she with was one, one of my instructors actually. Yeah. I, I have her book from when she was yeah. an instructor. It's, it's, it's so one of my great. favorite books, Feeding the Whole Family. Yep. And it'll talk about if you have a six-month-old, at this point in the recipe, take a little bit of this food out. If you have a nine-month-old, take this out. And it just emphasizes this idea that we eat as a family and we eat the same food. There's no kid food and their adult food. We, we all just eat food and you eat till you're not hungry. And if you just want to take a couple bites, that's fine. And if you want to eat a whole plate and have seconds, that's fine. But we're not going to make it into this like battle royale and this really stressful situation. Um, so I think that's why I like baby led weaning. There's a book called baby led weaning um, that kind of explains that process. But what we're, I have this, uh, what I call like the four F's of a gut friendly diet for kids. Um, yeah. And that's flavorful, fermented, fresh, and fiber. So when we look at those, th those four things, flavor is we should be, when we look at like, Things like spices, like turmeric, thyme, oregano, you know, all of our spices have an impact on the good gut microbiome and even potentially killing off some bad guys. So if we eat sort of spices as part of our regular food, then we're kind of taking some precautions like, ooh, you know, it's like when you eat sushi, you eat some pickled ginger. Well, pickled ginger is actually a really good antimicrobial. So maybe there's some parasites in that raw fish, but you're eating some stuff, you know, some pickled ginger and wasabi along the side to kill some of those bad guys off. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to have a lot of flavor and you want to introduce flavor early on. Like certainly, you know, we're not going to be throwing Tabasco on kiddos food. But I don't think that it has to be bland. Um, and that once you know, we get to that nine to 12 week mark, they can be exposed to a good amount of spices. And, and the earlier they have that exposure, the better it is at feeding their gut good guys, right. and the better um, they're going to be at accepting some of those foods later on. Well, you know, culturally, if you go to Mexico, or you go to Thailand, or you go to some of these places, I mean, People can eat really super hot food. Yeah. And, and they've been feeding, they're feeding their kids. They that started, food. yeah. They and started, so the kids they started them like early. That. So I think our fear of spices, especially like kind of Northern European 
uh, thing is like the sphere of spices and if you don't start it young, it's going to be harder when you're older. Yeah, it's a lot harder. You know, when I work with folks that have been eating kind of like a typical American diet their entire life, it's hard because it takes about a 30 to 60 days to like retrain your taste buds. Like the, the chemicals in our standard American food, like are put there to trick our brain into wanting more. Like there's this whole food science piece where they're like, hey, we're going to engineer this food that like bypasses your body's ability to feel full and like gets you high on food chemicals and makes you want more. Um, And those flavors are so intense that like when you start eating regular food, that's actual food, your body's like, "Woo, this is weird. I don't like this. Like what's this bitter flavor? What's this pungent flavor? Like we're just kind of used to that one note, like sweet or salty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really think experimenting with flavor early on just does your, does your kiddo so much good as far as allowing their bodies to like experiment all these different flavors and like accept them as like, yes, this is what food tastes like. There's all these different subtle flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, fermented food. I know you've talked about fermented food on the podcast a bunch oh, yeah. before. Yeah. Uh, fermented food is for children. Like even as early as again, in that, <clears throat> you know, six to 12 month period, I'll have people get like a little bit of the sauerkraut juice. Mm-hmm. And again, we want to make sure it's actually fermented sauerkraut, not salt preserved. We want to make sure there's live bacterial cultures in there. So either making it yourself or, or getting it from someone who's making it themselves or, you know, it's stored in the refrigerated section and yeah. you open it and it's nice and fizzy, but you can just use a little bit of that sauerkraut juice and mix it into the food that you're giving them to start to explore those, um, uh, getting some of that good gut bacteria in. I don't know about your kiddos, but like my kids love kombucha because they've always drank kombucha. They think it's awesome. And really yeah. the only options they have to drink in the house are like water. And sometimes we have kombucha. And in their mind, that's like soda. That's like a treat. They're like, ooh, bucha, bucha. They run around with their little cups, <laughs> more bucha. Um, and it's because they've always drank it. So they're right. they're used to that, that flavor profile that for some people can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, pickles is another one that's awesome. You can do those lacto-fermented pickles. Yep. Uh, do you guys eat the Bubby's pickles at your house? We do. So if we don't can them ourselves, and yeah, sometimes you we don't always great do... with canning. Yeah, we don't always do the lacto-fermented, but we do have, uh, we do our sauerkraut. So I have a recipe in our new guide that just came out, the Stealthy Hunter Canning and Preservation Guide. We do have a lacto-fermented sauerkraut in there. And then we yeah. have a regular pickle with vinegar and but you can also lacto-ferment your pickles, which is what Bubby's is. So if I don't have pickles, Bubby's is what I buy. I also buy her sauerkraut. They're, they're so good. Lacto-fermented, yeah. And a little trick that I've learned is I'll like drink after, that juice. I'll just drink the, the juice pickle juice. The juice is delicious. <laughs> I will totally drink the pickle juice as well. And what I learned to do is like if, if we eat all the pickles, you still have like a three-quarter jar full of the juice. I'll then chop other veggies. So I'll like chop up carrots and stuff them in with the juice and then leave them in the fridge for like a week. And then they lacto ferment. So you kind of get like a two for one special where you can use that lacto fermented brine. And then like the pickled carrots are really good. Like my kids will chomp those right up. And I even feel like sometimes they like them better than regular carrots because they have that salty flavor. Um, So it doesn't have to be like super fancy, exotic, like pickled kale. It's like, just get 
pickles, but instead of getting like the regular pickles, get the lacto-fermented pickles. That's a really good way to introduce fermented foods into the kiddo's diet. And then miso soup. I like miso soup for kids. I feel like when they're sick, it's really good. You can get some of that miso paste and again, mix it into soups or mix it into purees that you're already doing. Yeah. Um, so I just encourage people to kind of look outside the box and be like, how be- because probiotics are one thing, right? Like there's some good probiotic strains, but when you compare the amount of probiotics in like a probiotic capsule to a the amount of probiotics that are in like a tablespoon of sauerkraut juice, the sauerkraut juice blows those probiotics away. I really think of probiotics as being more like targeted and therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Like we use them for a specific reason, but the fermented foods are like laying down this entire like, garden of of microbiome sort of species that we can't even find in probiotics. There's probably things in fermented foods that we don't even, we haven't even identified. We don't even know what they do yet. And in like 10 years, we're going to be like, oh my God, they just, you know, discovered this really cool bacterial strain and it does all this amazing stuff. And like, kind of like as science catches up to what we know traditionally, we're going to be like, oh yeah, that's why it's always been so good to do. Well, I think it's important to just, you know, in, in our population that we're talking to here, our community, you know, this is people that are spending a lot of time outside and maybe hunting their own animals and growing their own gardens. And so they, they may understand this more. But, you know, really, when we look at ancestrally, a lot of the things that our ancestors did, you know, from the way they harvested and stored their vegetables and things for the winter to the fermented foods they were creating and the ways they were having to preserve their food is that there was in such an inherent knowledge in that, that, you know, science is super important and as physicians and, and, you know, we want to look at the science and we want to make sure that, you know, we're, we're doing no harm, but we also have to remind people that some of these age old practices, you know, unless you're like, you know, um, making your own mercury, you know, like they did in India and poisoning everybody with it, you know, or whatever. But there are a lot of things, especially nutritionally, that are very old concepts that have been used for thousands of years. And uh, there was a reason for that. And these cultures knew that even though they may not have understood the science behind it, they through trial and error learned that when they ate these foods, when they prepared them in these certain ways, that they lived they felt better, their immune systems were better, et cetera. And so I think it's always something to, to again, using that kind of internal marker, that internal voice that's, you know, helping you to understand yeah. um, why why ancestral diets really are, you know. Um, yeah, it's how very, it's... Very beneficial. Yeah, it's kind of what, what how, our, how our species evolved. And it's only really been the last couple hundred years where we've took this sort of, 180 turn where now it's more of like this industrial food where we're looking to sort of the industrialization of the food system to like provide food for us. And I think that's what's so cool about your podcast and what your listeners are doing is they're kind of bypassing that and being like, actually, like, we don't need to rely on industrial foods for the most part. Like, in some ways, industrial revolution was awesome. Like, I'm sitting in a house, I'm on wi-fi right now right (laughs) i'm not like having to till the fields for 12 hours a day and like i'm not necessarily saying like hey take me back there um but there's components of that that it's like hey let's look at like what's actually been beneficial and what's been helpful and what's kind of maybe thrown thrown things off balance um 
So we have the flavors and we have the fermented. The final mm-hmm. two Fs are fresh and fiber. I think fresh, like I said, your your folks that you're targeting and that are sort of involved in your community are really probably already up on the fresh component of the food. So fresh is, you know, stuff from the garden, stuff that hasn't been processed, um, meat that's, you know, wild or pasture raised that doesn't have antibiotics and hormones in it. Um, but the fresh food, what you're actually getting is what are called like the soil-based microbiome. So like you can buy fancy, like expensive probiotic pills that have soil-based probiotics in them, which are basically just the probiotics that are found in healthy soil. So if you're gardening, I'm always like, hey, eat some of that stuff out of the garden and don't wash it that well. Like get a little dirt in there. And you were actually talking about before before we started, which I think is super interesting about like – animal blood that you were listening to a podcast where part of the ancestral microbiome is influenced by eating like fresh animal meat and that that has a beneficial um, incidence on the microbiome, which I just think is so fascinating. So yeah, uh, there's just this, um, and I can reference it in the chart notes, but there's a guy out of London named uh, Tim Spector and he does, he's a professor of genetic epidemiology. So really his his area is twins. He studies twins and their, um, I think it's their epigenetic and phenotypic, like genotypic and phenotypic, like all these big words, but he studies their microbiomes basically. And what he did was he did an experiment and he went and spent uh, just one week with this tribe called the Hansa tribe that they live pretty much nomadically. Um, They haven't been touched much by outside um, influence. And I believe it's in Madagascar. I want to say off of Africa and he went and stayed with them and he found that in just one week he was able to change his microbiome because he lives in London right you can imagine his yeah. microbiome may not be that diverse I don't know or maybe it's very diverse just with different microbes he found that he was able to greatly um, diversify his microbiome by spending one week with this tribe so he was saying it really does it happens very fast so your lifestyle choices and and what you're eating and how you're eating and like he was basically traveling with this tribe while they were you know hunting and they were picking tubers out of them they were sitting on the ground and they were like you know they don't even have toilet paper kind of thing right there's like yeah. a lot of hygienic things that he was like totally scared of he thought he was going to get some but what he found was he he was actually able to build a, a more robust microbiome and he said it's because he said, so he's basically his research shows that people who spend a lot of time outside, they spend time with their hands in their dirt. Um, they have dogs. Dogs is one to increase diversity. Um, hunting where they're getting exposed to the other animal's, you know, body. Um, and uh, children, so children that are also exposed to these things, they have a more robust microbiome. And that it doesn't take very much time when you in, interject them into a lifestyle like that, that can improve their microbiome. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and that was, I was like, whoa, you know, so it says yeah. a lot for what we're trying to say is, you know, get outside, maybe hunt if you want to, or even just grow a garden and get, yeah. your, and get your kids out there with you. Getting you know? your kids in your garden is like, I get my, you know, we'll be outside and it's funny because I have one pick your eater and one kid will eat everything. And like, we literally did the exact same thing with them. But even my kiddo who's a little bit pickier, he'll eat things outside out of the garden that he won't eat inside on a plate. 
Right. Like we'll be out in the garden and he'll, you know, eat the cherry tomatoes. He'll basically try anything that we pick out of the garden. They'll be munching around. I take the food inside, wash it, put it on their plate. All of a sudden he hates it and doesn't want to try it. But I'm like, <laughs> right. dude, you just ate two handfuls of these tomatoes outside. They're literally the exact same thing. But I think there's so much to be said for just teaching kids how to grow things. And if you are like, I mean, I don't, I don't have anything near what you guys have out there. Like I'm a total, I'm a total urban dweller. I am not, I am not, you know, I've got three raised beds, um, but we grow a ton of food in like our tiny downtown city urban backyard. Like it doesn't yep. have to be, you know, a major extravaganza. I just kind of focus on the things that we like to eat that are good producers and, I really get the kiddos involved and, you know, sometimes they're more just, they're more, you know, they cause more harm than good. And I turn around and they're like, you know, pulling the leaves off things. But a lot of times, you know, they're really into it and they'll hundred percent try more stuff that they grew and be super into sort of that one thing than if, you know, they just found it at the grocery store or even taking them to a farmer's market. Like we'll go to our farmer's markets. They'll be like, Ooh, you guys can pick out like one new vegetable or fruit that we've never had before. Right. And they get really excited about it. I think we have to just, even though it's a little bit more time consuming, you know, taking time to slow down and involve them in food prep, involve them in picking up the food. That's a really good way to sort of get them more interested. Well, the one thing I love about, you know, living in Seattle, even though we live, you know, we don't live in Seattle, but if you go to Seattle, if you go to Denver, you know, I have a lot of family in Denver, so I've spent a lot of time there where you live, Uh, Portland, you know, California, some of these cities. The great thing is walking around in these neighborhoods that, you know, that's an urban environment, but people are utilizing their land. They're utilizing, they have boxes, they're growing food. And that's what we really want to share with people is, you know, you don't have to have property like we do. You don't have to be living like in this epic place where you have all this land. You could literally have a small front yard and you could change that into a place where you are exposing your children to growing food and doing that. It's just, it's just a learning curve, right? But once you do that, you know, you really don't need that space. You can grow a garden with just a deck. If you really yeah, you can to. just have a couple pots, yeah. you know, a small tomato plant, some basil, yeah. some climbing cucumbers. You're like, yeah, and, good and to go. And you want, you know, there's something to be said about cleanliness and keeping your children clean. But I think we hopefully are starting to come out of that kind of. We totally overdo it. Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, kids need to be dirty for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. So the final F of the sort of four Fs of the gut friendly diet is fiber. And that kind of comes along with fresh food, with fermented food, with getting foods that more flavors. All of those foods are by default going to have more fiber in them. And what the fiber is doing is actually providing fuel for our good gut bacteria. Our good gut bacteria thrive off of a high fiber diet. So we really want to make sure that there's multiple fiber sources, primarily being food, sort of fruits and veggies, but to not shy away from whole grains, from beans, and really getting a good variety of fiber in there. Yeah, I think that today I notice a lot of kids are not getting any fiber. I think they're eating a lot of processed grain and dairy 
uh, and, you know, meat or they're just not like that fiber getting enough vegetables, really. Or maybe they yeah. eat a lot of fruit and they don't eat enough vegetables. So. The vegetables are sort of a tougher one. And, you know, part of that will, for a lot of kids, they'll just sort of improve with age as long as we continually expose them to those foods. So one of the things as far as sort of fighting that dietary pickiness is to just keep offering repeat exposures. Um, and it is just, you know, taking that extra step of cooking whole grains instead of doing sort of some of the easier things like the instant rice cereal or, you know, even in like the gluten-free world, I see a lot of like rice flours and rice crackers and stuff that's pretty, pretty processed and devoid of that sort of full nutrient package. Right. And I listened to a, a something the other day about how kids are eating so much rice products now because their parents are trying to be gluten-free or they have allergies to the grains and they're starting to show levels of arsenic in their blood. Is it arsenic? Yeah, because of the high arsenic. rice content. Yep, yep. The Consumer Reports actually had a really good report on arsenic in foods and they actually have a chart that says this is how many different types of rice products you should be eating per week based on your age group. So I'll often reference that or sort of uh, email that chart to my patients and say, like, make sure you're just kind of keeping it under a certain level, because especially if you're using a lot of rice substitutes, doing rice pasta, doing rice crackers, doing rice cereal, you can get up above the safe recommendation. Um, and it's because of the high levels of arsenic in the soil where the rice is grown. And if those of you don't, who don't understand, uh, know arsenic is really a heavy metal, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so um, like mercury, lead, arsenic, aluminum, cadmium, we all have some exposures to these. And a lot of the time food exposures are very high because food is something that we eat every day. Um, and so you can, especially child, children have a higher body burden because they're smaller and they have a lower body weight. And so we really don't want them to have high body burdens of any of these heavy metals. It's not good for their brain or their neurological system. Thinking about that, if you're feeding your kid everything rice, uh, you know, maybe think of like you're saying cooking more whole grain, maybe like, yeah. Um, what would be I'm a, into, what would I'm be into grain diversity. Rice? So quinoa, millet, quinoa, yes. amaranth, um, and some of the rice it's, it's all, actually a little bit based on where the rice is um, harvested. So I like people, so California rice, the, do you know the Ludenberg yep. brand? So those guys actually, because they're California based, have some of the lower arsenic levels versus other areas of the United States or rice that's imported. So I really, I love that brand. It's a family brand. They do a lot of heirloom species of rice. So you can get black mm. rice, pink rice, you know, stuff that has uh, different varieties. Um, and they're going to be naturally lower in arsenic just because of their uh, location. So I really recommend that folks check out that brand for rice products. Cool. Yeah, so so fiber is a big one. Fiber is a big one for adults too. So mom and dad, if you're listening, um, if you're not getting enough fiber, it's likely you're, it's for sure your child is oh, getting yeah. enough fiber. So. And for adults, I'm like looking for people to be in the 35 to 50 grams per day range, which is really that upper level. But when they, when you look at optimizing your gut bacteria, you really want to be on that high end of fiber. So sometimes just tracking it for a day or two, like putting your daily food intake into something like my fitness pal and just kind of seeing, Hey, where, where is my baseline on an average day? Am I kind of 
ending in that 35 to 50 gram range. And then if not, kind of either considering adding in specific food groups, like I really like people to do a couple handfuls of dark leafy greens every day, increasing your beans or adding a, a fiber supplement just for days where you're like, yeah, I clearly didn't reach that goal today just yeah. to kind of round things out a little bit. Cause we all have those days where you're like, yeah, today wasn't the best day and doing like a greens powder. Um, and then like an extra scoop of fiber at the end of the day can, is, is often what I'll do if I kind of think back to the day and we're like, yeah, there's no way I got my, you know, six to nine cups of veggies. I didn't get my fiber in. Let's just kind of mm-hmm. do a quick fix. Yeah. A great way, you know, Ryan and I, we make our own kale powder for the winter. Yeah. We have ridiculous amounts of kale, but you can go to the grocery store and buy two or three heads of kale dehydrate them and turn them into a powder in your blender and put like one tablespoon of that in a smoothie. And that's like really concentrated fiber. Yeah. And, um, those kinds of things, especially when maybe fresh fruits and vegetables aren't in season. Uh, We do it with our raspberries as well. Uh, I was going to ask if you added berries in there. That's pretty cool. We do blackberries and raspberries. Uh, usually strawberries are hard because you know, a fresh strawberry doesn't last very long. It's hard, yeah. hard to get them dehydrated. People want to eat them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, those are simple, like really, if you have a dehydrator and you can get a dehydrator for not that much money, uh, but those are simple, cheaper ways to get fiber throughout the year. You know, the standard American diet is pretty much void of good fiber. And I think this is why we see so much irritable bowel, so much oh, yeah. gut so much dysbiosis and it starts in kids. I mean, if your Mm -hmm. child is not eating these foods, they're not getting the adequate fiber to support their gut bacteria. And it's kind of like a boring topic. Like it's not as cool as like strains to specific probiotics or, you know, doing all this testing, but oftentimes it's the simple stuff that makes the biggest difference, especially if we're talking about kids and just general prevention, just being as boring as like, make sure you're getting enough fiber can have such a huge impact before we sort of move on to, you know, these more kind of cooler, trendier approaches. It's sometimes like, just go back to the basics, like eat fiber, eat your fruits and veggies. It doesn't have to always be this complicated process. Right. And get your kid maybe used to eating like the the skin on the apple and, you know, the things yeah. that we cut a lot off of, the skin on yeah. the carrot, all these things yep. that are part of it. Skin yeah. on potatoes. <clears throat> yeah, I never peel stuff. I'm, I'm I don't either. It's just because I'm lazy, <laughs> but I like to think it's because I'm like, oh, no, that's because, you know, that's where all the fiber and veggies, uh, like, extra nutrients are. But mostly it's just because I'm lazy and don't want to uh, peel stuff all yeah, day. It, it's okay not to peel it. I mean, obviously, you're not going to eat the banana peel or the avocado peel or something. But uh, right. most things that have, a, you know that have a skin, that's a big part of the fiber component of it. Even a whole grain, right? Like a piece of wheat. If you if you strip the wheat and process it, you remove that whole grain husk and that takes out all the fiber. So that's the difference between whole grain wheat and processed white wheat. So. Yep. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about other lifestyle factors. We talked some about diet, but other lifestyle factors that can I guess we're kind of getting into this thing of you know if you've got kids out there fussy kids and they've got digestive issues they've got allergies they've got um you know acid reflux what are some of the lifestyle factors that yeah and I think sometimes we sort of uh focus more on diet than lifestyle um because lifestyle changes can be a little bit harder but lifestyle is super important so 
there's a bunch of gut-friendly lifestyle practices for kids that I just kind of want to chat about a little bit. One we've kind of talked about, which is playing outside, getting dirty, um, not using antimicrobial soaps or hand sanitizers. And this can be a huge leap for some people because it's so common to kind of walk around and see people, you know, pushing their stroller and, you know, attached to the stroller, they have this like hand sanitizer, this Purell ready to go. And everybody who's touching the baby has to put this hand sanitizer on. Uh, But we're really finding out that that is detrimental to the gut microbiome that, you know, if you hands, you know, if you put hand sanitizer on, and then you put your hand in your baby's mouth, they're getting exposed to that, that's killing off their good bacteria as well. Um, Same with the antimicrobial soaps, there's a lot of chemicals on there that are not healthy, for a number of reasons, but certainly aren't great for our gut microbiome. Just plain, warm, soapy water is fine. If you want to make a hand sanitizer, sometimes I'll have people just, you know, put a couple drops of different essential oils uh, into a little spray bottle with water and kind of spray their hands down. That seems to be less detrimental to our good guys, but still can cut down on some of the viruses and bacteria. But really, it's just, you know, good hand washing and not being too sterile. We've sort of overly sterilized childhood to the detriment of our good gut bacteria. Agreed. Definitely agreed. Just wash your hands with hot water. And you notice how you go out in public, there's never any hot water. (laughs) You go to the mall, you wash your hands, there's no hot water. You know, that, that's, that's the biggest problem. And yeah, uh, yeah, unfortunately. We're out and about so much. I'm actually about to be that weird person that starts bringing my own soap because we use that, you know, that, that foamy soap that comes out of the dispenser, Mm -hmm. um, like at the mall, at the rec center, at the gym. And I'm like, every time I do it, I'm kind of cringing, like, Oh, I know this stuff is terrible. So the other day I was like, forget it. I'm just going to start, you know, get a bunch of little mini, uh, soap dispensers that have just more, you know, not the strong antibacterial hand soap, but just like normal soap and just start to be that weirdo that carries soap around everywhere because our exposure is enough that I'm like, this could be making a big difference. If Well, the research came out recently, what was it, uh, earlier this year or the end of last year about it actually having disrupting hormonal regulation? Yeah, it disrupts hormones, it disrupts the microbiome. And I'm just, you know, over it. Like I said, we're, we're out in the world enough that, you know, even if you're getting exposed to that, you know, four to five times a week, I think it's enough that it makes a difference. So mm-hmm. I'm just about to be that person that brings their own soap everywhere. <laughs> I have to embrace that about myself. Um, the other thing that I think gets overlooked is the importance of sleep. Mm-hmm. So while we're sleeping is when our gut kind of does this sort of clear out there, these, these complexes that sort of sweep the good bacteria and the bad bacteria out through our intestines and help keep the balance. And that really only happens during our deep restorative sleep phase. Um, So sleep is really deeply tied into good gut health. So I always, you know, when I'm evaluating somebody's digestion, sleep is a big part of that conversation. Um, The other thing is our gut brain connection, right? So we're starting to learn so much more about how stress affects the gut and how the gut affects our brain and our neurotransmitter production. Um, And I don't think we think about of kids being able to be stressed, but I think today's kids really do actually experience a decent amount of stress. They tend to be sort of overscheduled. They don't get enough downtime. Um, they're not relaxing in nature as much. So I think stress is an important part of the conversation as well. Yeah. And especially uh, just living like where we live, you know, you live in Colorado, so you live in the beautiful high sun, even all year round. 
yeah. here in Washington on the west side. You you went to med school here, so you know it. It's yeah. dark. It's raining. It's not like snow. You can't go outside and play in your yeah. snowsuit. You go outside for five minutes. You're soaked. Um, it's dark. You're not getting outside a lot. And you, de- I definitely noticed, you know, that is like, even for parents, that's a stressful thing. Like, cause totally. getting your kids outside gives you some, you know, get them outside. I know at our house, go outside, go in the garden, go pick some food, go do that. Well, in the winter, it's a totally different situation. And so you have to be more active in making those outdoor activities happen. But Living yeah. somewhere like Colorado, you know, or you can maybe I know we're a little bit spoiled. Sun. Even now, I can kind of look outside, and it's late November, and I'm like, "Ooh, it's like 60 degrees out, blue sky." I'm gonna take a walk after this. Um, oh. And I think, kind of going back to parents, I feel like parents are sort of like the central nervous system of the family unit that in order to have sort of a lower stress household, parents themselves have to be engaged in sort of activities that lower their stress level and they need to mirror that for their kiddos. So having a family mindfulness practice, making sure your kiddos understand like, hey, it's important for mom and dad to do X, Y, Z so that, you know, we can be chill and calm and then mirror that for them because kids are sort of neurologic sponges. They really see what's going on and I feel like, you know, whatever the vibe of the household is, is what they pick up on. So if everybody's kind of in this fight or flight sympathetic mode all the time, that's going to be reflected in the kid's nervous system. Whereas if we're making time for that parasympathetic rest and digest, time for family downtime, everyone relaxing together and not sort of running from place to place to place all the time, Mm -hmm. that's going to sort of result in a better gut brain connection. And there's actually research that under times of stress, certain strains of gut bacteria will leave your body. They're like, peace out. We don't want to hang out in here in this stressful (laughs) environment. And there's strains of lactobacillus that will be lowered just by the experience of stress alone. Um, So we want to make like a nice chill place for our gut bacteria to hang out. We don't want to sort of scare them away by constantly being in this uh, stressed out state. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then the final gut-friendly practices that I want to touch on are sort of two things. The first is to minimize antibiotic use. Um, we're getting into sort of cold and flu season here. And at the beginning of it, beginning of the season, I just cringe because I see such a huge per- over-prescription of antibiotics for things um, that p- could probably clear out without them. Mm-hmm. So most ear infections don't need to be treated with antibiotics. Most sinus infections don't need to be treated with antibiotics. Certainly the flu, which is viral, doesn't need to be treated with antibiotics. But I see people really being overtreated. So I think having that conversation with your doctor, like, hey, what's the harm in sort of watching and waiting? Or could we give this 24 hours while I do other supportive therapies? What would be signs that you know, things were moving in the wrong direction and we should start antibiotics because antibiotics really shouldn't be a first line therapy for the majority of these conditions. And sort of one dose of antibiotics can disrupt the gut microbiome for a minimum of three to six months. So even I think we've sort of normalized this idea that being on antibiotics two to three times a year is just a normal part of childhood, right? Mm-hmm. That you'll get ear infections, you'll get strep, you'll get sort of bronchitis. And, and if you're on antibiotics two to three times a year, 
your gut microbiome is never recovering from that. Um, I kind of think it's normal for kids to be on antibiotics, maybe like once or twice per childhood, you know, Mm, (laughs) once or twice per decade. Um, that's more normal to me. And that's kind of what I see among families who are taking kind of a more holistic approach. So if kids are having repeat infections, um, that's a good reason to kind of check in with a naturopathic doctor, look at your diet and things like that and be like this, we've sort of normalized this poor level of health for our kids. Um, and then we get into this cycle where they're constantly on antibiotics, their microbiome's constantly disrupted, their immune system can't respond as well. We're setting them up for food sensitivities and things like that. Mm -hmm. So definitely antibiotic use is a huge one. And then the second part of that, which is like, my big platform right now is avoiding the use of proton pump inhibitors in kiddos. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing now one in 10, even a little bit more than that. So more than 10% of infants are being prescribed proton pump inhibitors like Zantec or Prevacid. Okay. Can you, uh, we've talked about this quite a bit with Dr. Jillian, who you know well as well and in adults. In adult. And so what, yeah. is, what is a proton pump inhibitor, though? A lot of people so don't. a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 agonist, so that's a histamine 2 receptor agonist, those are two categories of medication that are used to treat reflux in adults. And recently that has been sort of moved into the treatment of digestive disturbance, colic, and fussiness in infants. And basically what those do is they inhibit the uh, production of stomach acid. Right. Uh, So that can be a short-term solution, but in the long term, what you see is a decreased nutrient absorption. They actually just had a study that infants that were given proton pump inhibitors have an increased fracture risk in childhood, probably because they're not absorbing that calcium and magnesium that we sort of need an acidic gut environment for. Um, Increased risk of respiratory infections, increased risk of gut infections. So these medications are vastly overused right now. And I think too, with people, I think with parents, as our children get sick, we have this immediate reaction that they need an antibiotic. Like you said, we've been trained, like the antibiotic fixes everything. And then the parents come into the physician and they basically demand an antibiotic. And I think that we see a lot of physicians prescribing, like you said, unnecessarily, because there's a lot of pressure on them. You know, they have 40 or 50 or 60 patients that day and all of them are sick and the parents are all haven't worked and are sleep deprived and stressed out and all the other kids are getting it now and they're like just give us an antibiotic you know but I think it's important as a parent to realize that there are certain signs to things when your child needs an antibiotic and what I see a lot of time is that parents are bringing in their children for really I hate to say it but a lot of it is just kind of needless time that you, you've spent taking your child into the doctor, exposing them and other people to these things, when a lot of it is the child just needs to stay home, they need rest, they, you know, they, um, yeah. they need to not be out and spending their time at the doctor visit, where the doctor really would probably just say to you, take them home and let them rest, right? Yeah. Um, and especially not demanding antibiotics from your physician, who is stressed out and under that. And by doing that, you know, you're kind of accentuating that problem of your child being right. prescribed antibiotics. So I don't want to put the blame on the parent, but I know even as myself, you they're, see often, contribu- they're like, often contributory because they want sort of a quicker fix and they want their kiddo to get better as soon as possible. And 
we live in sort of a convenience-driven society where, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have sick leave. They don't have local familial support to sort of say, hey, I need to take off, you know, time from work. And I've certainly been in that conundrum myself where I've been like, oh, I feel like my kiddo's coming down with something, but, like, I can't or I don't want to take the day off of work. It's going to be so inconvenient to reschedule right. people. And I even sometimes have to check myself, like, no, if they're sick, you guys, you know, everybody has to stay home. We shouldn't be pushing our kids to school with like these borderline illnesses because that's when they turn into sort of bigger deals. And even though it's kind of a pain to like slow down and stop life and let everybody like heal and recuperate, it's like sometimes they're going to have to miss the birthday party. Sometimes they're going to have to stay home from school. And it's something we really need to like change on a society wide uh, level. So it's not just the individual parents, but like, if your kids are sick, you should be able to stay home. Like we should have paid sick leave for families. We should have, you know, options for better childcare. Cause I think that stress of like, we don't have time for everyone to be sick. So, you know, mm -hmm. let's just, you know, push through it actually results in a lot more issues. Whereas if we could kind of slow down and be like, Hey, it's cold and flu season, you know, you can kind of tell your kids start getting that glassy eyed look or maybe yeah. a little congested and you're like, Oh, nope, you know, we're staying home. We're drinking chicken noodle soup. We're taking our extra vitamin C and elderberry. You know, we're going to take some warm baths, do some warming sock treatments, like trying to slow down and let our bodies heal versus pushing ourselves to the point where there is a bacterial infection that might need antibiotics. Oftentimes, it's because we didn't slow down and, you know, rest mm -hmm. and recuperate. And also keep your germs at home. Like... <laughs> Yeah. Don't take your germs out into the world. If yeah. everyone was better at staying home, we probably wouldn't have as much issues. But we're so work focused and so like keep moving focused that nobody takes the time to to heal. It's just like, nope, we got to push through. And that's mm -hmm. when I think people really get a lot sicker. And I think this is once you have children, you realize, you you know, before you have kids, and especially if you're working, like both people are working and educated and you're like, oh, I'll always work. I'll always like want to be doing stuff. And you have kids and then you understand the role of a parent staying home. You know, I, I think that I sometimes feel like the whole, the whole message of women can do it all. We can work, we can fry up the bacon, we can take care of the kids. It's kind of like too much, you know, and I think sometimes we don't put enough, um, any more like pride in, in women or men who do stay home because you think of it, one illness can wipe out the whole family. And if you both yeah. have to work, I can't tell you how many times Ryan and I have been sitting on the bathroom, bathroom floor of a bathroom. We're trying to steam up at four in the morning, basically doing rock, paper, scissors at whose job is more important because yeah. who's going to take a sick kid? Nobody. Yeah. And to, I really counsel families about like, figure out a, a structure with that that works for you like is there a possibility if both parents are working that somebody works part-time or 30 hours a week or you know people can negotiate more flexible hours or working one day from home um because I do think that dynamic of having sort of two working parents working full-time it's just so hard to have balance within the family unit with that um or can you know both parents work 35 hours a week I mean there's so many different ways to do it but I think we've got this sort of striver lifestyle of like well then you know we have to buy more we have to acquire more we have to kind of keep things moving where oftentimes it's a question of like well can we make some sort of financial sacrifice to create 
a home that's sort of lower stress to have time to cook our food. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's really hard. You got, you have to kind of swim upstream to navigate a healthy lifestyle in sort of today's society because the expectations are not sort of health focused. They're much more like material success, success focused and material focused. Yeah. Sort of speaking of uh, Dr. Jillian, we're working on a program right now that should be available um, we're doing a free school at the end of the month, and then we'll have an ongoing program called the Fussy Babies Program that really helps families understand how to treat their fussy kiddos who may or may not have reflux. Usually they don't, but oftentimes they have a combination of symptoms, potentially for some food sensitivities, um, some imbalance of their gut microbiome, kind of a, a stressed out gut brain, and those kind of present as colic um, colicky symptoms, refluxy symptoms, we call it irritable baby syndrome, where you have these constellation of symptoms and they're being treated conventionally with proton pump inhibitors, which one shows, you know, in the research that it doesn't really work that well, but two does have some specific risks. So we've been really working on this program because I would love to see families have other options. It's not that proton pump inhibitors are never indicated, but usually they're presented as the only option without really going into the risk benefit ratio. So what we're looking at are what are some other things we can do to avoid the use of proton pump inhibitors and babies and kiddos, looking at things like food sensitivities, looking at things like supporting a good gut microbiome, um, helping with that gut brain connection. So that's a huge passion project of mine right now. And I think if we can sort of get these interventions going in sort of the infant and toddler population, you're just setting your kiddo up for so much so much more sort of robust health throughout their lifetime um, by kind of digging into these root issues and saying like, all right, let's kind of get you going with some good, good, healthy gut practices early on. Mm -hmm. So we avoid some of those things later, uh, later on in life versus, you know, doing treatments that are more suppressive or not really looking at the root cause. Yeah, well, that's cool. I mean, I know our listeners uh, love Dr. Jillian. She's been on here a number of times and, you know, her specialty with gut health and adults, at, at least, you know, a lot of listeners know that. And so that's cool. You two are working together to create this. I, I actually get quite a few messages from parents. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you. Uh, about this is because, um, you know, obviously our demographic is mainly adults, it's mainly men, but we're seeing a rise in women and their wives and families. You know, we really, we really want to speak to the whole family. That's how we live. I know that's how you live. You know, kids are a huge piece of our life and we want to start them out right. My kind of closing words is just, again, when we're dealing with kid stuff, when we're dealing with babies, there can be, you know, a lot of guilt about choices maybe you made in the past or times where you didn't have the information. And this is totally not geared towards sort of shaming people or making them feel bad. It's really just information that can inform your choices moving forward, right? Like we're all Mm -hmm. doing the best that we can in the moment. And what I want to do is just sort of inform families, empower them, give them information so they just know there's other choices out there that, you know, we don't always have to kind of go the default route of, you know, more pharmacy and, you know, more prescriptions, that there's a lot of different ways we can support our kids' health. And while those things are helpful at specific times, really, they're just sort of more for those sort of acute big deal situations that the majority of things we can really be managing with these sort of lower tech 
kind of back to back to our roots um, interventions. Right. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you uh, spending all this time with us and giving us this valuable information. And um, as I said, everybody go and check out Dr. Caitlin, Dr. Jillian and what they're doing with Fussy Baby School. That's awesome. The Hunt Harvest Health Podcast and Stealthy Hunter LLC website is for general health information only. This podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment of any health condition or problem. Any questions regarding your own health should be addressed to your own primary care physician or other health care provider. If you have more questions related to naturopathic care and possibly setting up a consult with Dr. Hillary, please go to our website at huntharvesthealth.com slash medical consults or email us at lampers at stealthyhunter.com. Please note, without direct medical consult, all correspondence is only a recommendation and cannot be considered medical treatment.